Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of living water, and we hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to Living Water, where we've been looking at the Bible through the lens of water or the lack of it. And I got to tell you, we started last fall and we're still going. I've got plenty of Bible stories that I'm beginning to see in a new way just because it's got water in the background. And today I want to talk about uh, the region called the Sea of Galilee, which is an important body of water in the world. First thing I'll say about it is it's not a sea, it's a lake. But in the Hebrew language, especially the language of the world of Jesus, they didn't have a word for water except for sea. If you live in a place that doesn't have uh, very much water, a lake that's seven miles across and 11 miles long, which may not look like much of a lake to us in Alabama, uh, looks a lot like a sea to them. But even in the first temple, the temple that Solomon built, there was a a copper vessel, if you will, of water, and they called that uh, the sea, if you will. Those were the sea. So they only have one word for any body of water because they don't have a whole lot of it. So over half the Gospels take place at the Sea of Galilee, at least the first three anyway. Remember, we've got four Gospels, and you've got the first three are called the synoptics, which means that they're seen with the same view. Uh, More specifically, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Uh, Almost 95% of Mark is found both in Matthew and in Luke, so they're told the same way. And over half of these Gospels take place by the Sea of Galilee. That's a start. Now, I've already told you it's not a very big lake, seven miles across, 11 miles long. You might be interested to know that over half the Gospels take place in a 10-mile arc on the northwest shore of the lake. Just 10 miles, just 10 miles uh, for all the stories that you know. Think about them, Uh, 10 miles for the feeding of the 5,000 or the Sermon on the Mount or the stilling of the storm or the casting out. Uh, demons in the synagogue or the call of the disciples. I mean, keep going. Think of the stories that you know, and they all happen within a 10-mile arc for a really, really simple reason. Uh, That's where the fish are. On the northwest shore of the lake, it's it's shallow and grassy, and the fish that they caught were a were an African tilapia, an algae-eating fish. So this is a fish that you have to catch with nets, which brings me something to say also about the Sea of Galilee and the fascinating biodiversity of this place. Uh, Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, sits in the Jordan Rift Valley, which is a crack in the earth between two tectonic plates running from Ethiopia all the way up into Syria around Damascus. It's a deep, deep cut in the earth, which makes the Sea of Galilee the lowest freshwater lake on planet Earth. It's 800 feet below sea level, so it sits in a bowl, which means that the Sermon on the Mount is really a sermon on the bank of the lake, if you will. And also, it's it's fascinating to me that that the tilapia that, that live naturally in the Sea of Galilee are African flora and fauna. There's bougainvillea growing around and bananas and palm trees, date palms, of course, a lot of that kind of stuff. But if you drive one hour north of the Sea of Galilee. On either side of the Jordan River, you've got Asia on one side and Europe on the other. Just drive an hour north and you're in Europe and Asia. You can just do this in a morning, right? Hit three continents. And my friend Idan, my Israeli friend living over there, thinks that this might be why God uh, chose his people in this part of the world, why he chose the Near East to to tell uh, God's story to us, because it sits in the middle of three continents. Where can you where can you go in a morning uh, to three different uh, corners of the earth, if you will? 
And so which which means, practically speaking, that an hour north of the Sea of Galilee, you've got cherry trees and brook trout. Crazy, crazy biodiversity. So also the fact that the 10-mile arc on the northwest shore of the lake is where the fish are, which means that's where the stories happen, the calling of fishermen, if you will, or even the villages supported by the fishing industry, that tells me that the Gospels are about real people, real people with real jobs and real uh, lives. So they're real people stories. Now, for me, I think the iconic Galilee story happening on this body of water, as we're, as we're talking about living water, happens in Mark chapter 5, and it's really two stories wrapped into one. You get a chance to see um, a leader of a synagogue bowing down to Jesus. Uh, Jesus has just set this world on fire so that even someone prominent, like a man named, named Jairus, who's the leader of the synagogue, would, would bow down uh, and kneel before Jesus and ask for his help. You have a desperate woman with a hemorrhage uh, crawling through the crowds uh, to touch the hem of Jesus' garment, and then you've got a little girl raised to life, and it's all in one scene right here by the shore of the lake where the fish are. So I want to read a few verses. This is Mark chapter 5, uh, 21 through the end to 43. Amazing story. Uh, when you hear it, just kind of act like you've never heard it before and see if you can hear something new, and then we'll talk about it. Also, whenever the Gospels talk about Jesus going to the other side or coming back from the other side, I want you to know that the Sea of Galilee is so small, you can always see over to the other side so that the eastern shore of the lake is Greek-speaking Gentile. These are foreigners. Jesus is returning uh, from, from a healing over there where no one knew who he was, but you can always see it. So the other side is significant. And then the Jewish side of the lake would be the northwest shore, that 10-mile arc. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him. And a large crowd went with him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. And she was no better, but rather grew worse. And when she had heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, for she said, But if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say, Who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were there with him and went in there where the child was. And he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. 
and immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age, and at this they were strictly overcome with amazement, and he strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told her to give her something to eat. This story is amazing. It's called a sandwich because it's a story within a story. I mean, on one level, you could certainly see the uh, uh, Jesus' ability to to manage time, right? He's, he's, he's on the way uh, to a healing, uh, but then he pauses for another healing. He always seems to be present with people no matter how busy he could be. And, of course, this is the reason why Jesus will retreat from time to time to get some rest. I mean, his his days are long and the crowds are, are, are desperate, if you will, on this side of the lake where he has set the world on fire. But there's some other details in here that I think will help if we live in the world of Jesus to see not only the drama of this story, but also how the two are linked together, the old woman and the little girl. The first one is the idea of blood. Blood or dom in the Hebrew language uh, also means life or life source. It's the very source of life uh, for Hebrew people. They saw blood as very important and sacred. Remember that the blood of a lamb was put on the lintel uh, at, at the Passover so that the Passover uh, uh, angel or death would pass over them, right? Uh, and so we see Jesus as the sacrifice, and we say the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. We're heirs of this idea that blood is a, is a life force. It's something that gives us life. And for that reason, uh, blood would, would, be, would con- be considered sacred, but it could also make you unclean. And the fact that this woman had hemorrhage they had all sorts of, of quarantines, if you will, if you were to touch a dead body or be in contact with blood and be defiled. And for this woman to have hemorrhage would be a horror show. It's, it's as if her life were going out of her. In a few verses before this story, we have a man who lived in the tombs, another unclean place. And it also is a horror show with a thousand demons in his mind, and he's howling and shrieking. And we can relate to that one. That one's a scary story uh, in the 21st century. But in the first century, someone uh, having an issue of blood would also be a horror story because one, she would make you unclean just by just by coming in contact with her, and two, you're watching someone dying before your very eyes. I mean, it's a horrible thing. And then you've got the little girl who has died, and and again, they're they're connected by this by this this death and this slow death. The other one is the number twelve. Uh, the woman had an issue of blood for 12 years. The little girl was 12 years of age. So the two stories are are different, but they're not different after all. And then you've got Jesus whispering in Aramaic, Talitha Kum, which takes us right to the source. It cuts through through translations. I mean, we read read the story in English from the gospel written in Greek, but Mark, the author Mark, wanted you to see and hear and, and to feel this in the earthiness of the Aramaic language, Talitha Kum, get up which means that this story is a real-life story for all ages, which means that the Gospels are for all of us at any stage of our life. God will heal us. God will guide us. God will reach us where we are if we're very old or very young. And however we may be hurting, God knows our name and will say, Talitha Kum, get up. God will say that to us, and God will protect us. So it's a pretty cool little story. And and if you travel to the ten mile arc uh, where the fish are on the on the northwest shore of the lake, uh, you can see where things like this happened. It, they're like whispers, uh, but you can certainly live in their world. I think people honestly, when I take groups to Israel, I think people are captivated by Galilee. They know they need to see Jerusalem, and we take the groups down there in the buses, and we go to the big city. But everyone always says at the end of the trip, I wish we could go back to the lake. I wish we could go back to the lake. And in our next podcast episode, we're going to do just that. We're going to go back to the lake after Easter because, of course, Jesus wanted to go home. This is home for him. 
So if you travel there, you can find you can find traces of, of where stuff like this happened. I, I call them whispers, uh, sort of like the um, the ruins of Capernaum, the little rocks uh, coming up out of the ground, or um, or grassy fields where where Jesus grassy fields where Jesus was spoken to to the crowds as they as they sat you know sat on the ground to hear him preach the Sermon on the Mount. And there's even a column in the ruins of Capernaum with the family name of Zebedee on it to show that, that the Zebedees were not just uh, made-up disciples, but rather real people with a real family name and a real business. So the big news, so you, you go there and you see this stuff and you can really soak in the Bible. The big news happened in 2009, which in a place called Magdala, where Mary Magdalene is from, where Magdala means tower, and it's called Migdal today. Uh, it, it Mary, Mary Magdalene was from a place where they found uh, in the mud on the shore of the lake where the fish are, uh, they found a synagogue. And no one had ever fi- found one of these before. They found it by accident. Uh, they were building a beach hotel and ran across this this structure. Immediately, they called the Antiquities Department of the of the government, and construction was halted, and they uncovered a first century synagogue which had set the world on fire for two reasons. One, it contained an ornamental stone in the middle called a Magdala stone that they now have a reproduction out there because it's a national treasure. It's the original is in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. They had a, a, an ornamental stone that was a three-dimension replica of the temple in Jerusalem uh, to beautify and to make holy the synagogue. We didn't know that Hebrew people did that. But what's even more significant is that it's a it's an eyewitness first century primary source account of what someone thought the temple in Jerusalem looked like. And we only had words on a page. So that's a pretty cool 3D kind of representation. That 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 set the, the scientific world on fire. What sets the Christian world on fire, what sets me on fire, is the fact that now we had something where we know Jesus prayed. We know Jesus taught, and perhaps even Jesus healed there. Now, when I say we hadn't had one of these before, we do have the ruins of ancient Capernaum. And as I mentioned, you've got the rocks and the streets and the house. You've even got the house of Simon Peter and his mother-in-law where Jesus performs his first miracle in the Gospel of Mark. That's not an exorcism. His first healing actually happens in Capernaum in the very house, and you can see it today. But in the middle of the ruins of the ancient city, there is a large marble 4th century, uh, a baby 5th century synagogue uh, that is too valuable to bust up because we think that the synagogue that Jesus would have prayed in like Magdala or healed in like Magdala or taught in like Magdala is beneath the fourth or fifth century synagogue. It's a massive thing. It's beautiful with Corinthian columns and beautiful white marble stones. But here's the mystery or perhaps here's the tragedy, I would say, of Capernaum. When we take people there, of course, I've got my friend who's a scientist. So tour guides will either will either do one of two things when they go to Capernaum, they will say, um, one, Jesus healed here because this is the synagogue of Mark chapter one. They'll say that. Uh, and that's not true. It's, it's a later, it's later structure and it's Roman and it's bigger. Two, the, the prevalent, I say, with idea for American tourists anyway, would be to say that, well, this is a later Roman synagogue and isn't it beautiful and it's too nice to bust up to get down to the, the little one that Jesus would have preached in and little poor little Capernaum that looks like a pile of rocks. What we do with our groups would be a third idea, and it's it naturally it gets us thinking about what we do with the Gospels. We, we take people through the ruins of the city, and we look at the structures. Capernaum looks like a pile of rocks. 
In the first century, it looked like a pile of rocks, misshapen stones, flat mud roofs, uh, very poor construction, you know, the smoke and dung and, and, and animal smells and children everywhere. In other words, Jesus didn't hang out uh, with, in nice places. He didn't hang out in Roman places. He didn't hang out in fancy places either. He hung out with very, very poor people. So imagine the poorest hamlet or trailer park in your own community, your own state, and you're getting, you're getting a feel for, for life on the shore of the Galilee where the fish are. Jesus hung out amongst the poorest people in their nation, and Capernaum would be one of these. So after we show them the construction of Capernaum and we look at the Roman synagogue, it's almost like walking into a different era because you're stepping away from a pile of rocks into something that is grand and monumental and exquisitely constructed. And as Idan will point out, and I think this is a really wise idea of his, is that it's Capernaum didn't have the money to ever build something like this. They didn't have the money in the first century, and they didn't have the money in the fifth century to build a structure like this. So where did it come from and who paid for it? Well, the thought is, is that when, when Constantine in the early fourth century began to make Christianity the glue to hold the Roman Empire together, and when he sent his mother, who was a Christian, to the Holy Land to find where the sites of the Bible happened and to build churches there, like Church of the Holy Sepulchre over Calvary or Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem over the cave where Jesus was supposedly born, uh, when Romans began to travel, if you will, to the lands of the Bible to see where these stories happened, they came to Capernaum where over half of the Gospels happened, right? Remember, over half the stories happened in this 10-mile arc on the north shore of the lake where the fish are. They came here and they saw a pile of rocks. They saw a pile of rocks. We believe that Roman people built the synagogue so that the Romans would have something to see, have something to look at. A wealthy Roman convert from Tuscany coming down and spending money with his wife and his retinue of slaves and, and children and right and, and, a, and a wagon uh, come down here and looking at a pile of rocks. They needed to see something to impress them. They needed to see something that looked like them. In short, I'm trying to say that, that there are times when Jesus embarrasses us. Uh, Jesus, his own uh, grace, his own love of the outcast, his own pushing us to places where we're not comfortable. And here in Capernaum, you can see this early, early embarrassment with our God who became one of his own creation to hang out with people who lived in a pile of rocks. So now you can see why the Magdala Synagogue is so exciting for the world, right? Now we have a worship space, uh, not underneath a Roman structure, uh, that where you can see the tiles where Jesus' sandaled feet would have walked. You can see the benches where Jesus would have sat with the other elders, and it is absolutely electric. In the years since, a luxury hotel has been finished adjacent to it. Uh, there is ample parking for tour buses, uh, plenty of souvenirs to buy, a story to tell, pictures to take, and you can bet that this synagogue is the big news of the 10-mile arc now on the north shore of the lake where the fish are. Christian pilgrims to Israel will always stop here. It is, a, it, to put it in Disney terms, it is an e-ticket, and it was the big news until last year. Now, I just, I just returned from Israel uh, last week with my son, and we were able to see this, but in the middle of last year, they were building a roundabout across the street from the luxury hotel, which, which would make it about 500 yards uh, from the synagogue that we have. And as they were widening the road, they, they came across another synagogue, another synagogue across the road. Now, 
we didn't know that Hebrews had did this. We didn't know that they had multiple synagogues in the community. The assumption would be that the one synagogue would be the community center, and none of these towns are very, very big. So there are currently two schools of thought with regards to the synagogue. One, and I need to say this, one, the baseline is that it is a synagogue. It is 500 yards away from, from the original synagogue of Magdala that had been found in 2009. In 2022, uh, they found a second one. It is poorer and less ornate. That's the first thing, first thing that we know. We know that it dates from the time of Jesus, and it is one that, that obviously is a poorer house of worship because it is less adorned, if you will. And you got to ask the question, knowing, knowing Jesus like we do, uh, where would Jesus hang out, right? The poor one or the rich one? So that makes it pretty exciting if it dates to the world of Jesus and it's the poor house of worship, then you're looking at a place where Jesus probably prayed, right? Probably taught and possibly healed. So that's the first thing. Now, two schools of thought with regards to the origins of this place. One, one is quite frankly that it was for the poor folks. So that makes it, that makes it compelling. Two, second school of thought is that it's a church split, a church split. Now, we all know something about church splits. Uh, St. Luke's is not immune to a church split. I don't think any church is immune to a church split, but it reminds me of the old joke about a man who's rescued on a desert island, and upon rescue, he had three huts on the island, and one hut was where he lived, and the second hut was where he went to church, and the third hut is where he used to go to church, right? And the church splits are just what people do, and, and scientists and archaeologists are wondering if, if because Jesus the Galilean set his world on fire like he did in Mark chapter 5, uh, like he did in all the miracles of the Gospels that we know, on the 10-mile arc of the, of the lake, as people were talking, that the people of Magdala would have left the, the ornate, wealthier Magdalene synagogue in order to build something new and authentic and clean and real. In other words, this little synagogue, the second synagogue, uh, may be a manifestation of the earliest spread of the gospel, which makes it really exciting to me. So I'm over there uh, a week ago with my son, and I'm climbing all over this thing. I crawl over a silt fence, and I'm uh, walk through some mud, and I'm, I'm standing where 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 I'm certain Jesus stood. You could just just feel the electricity around the find, and the road engineer walks up. They're they're currently working on the roundabout, and they've got a crew out there, and I'm just sort of standing in the middle of of an active uh, road construction, if you will. Uh, but the fellow was really nice, and he was really proud to show me because he found the synagogue, and I asked him what happens next for this. And he said, well, I'm sorry to tell you that nobody wants it. I'm sorry to tell you that nobody wants it. I had to ask him again, nobody, what do you mean nobody wants it? He, he said, I called the hotel across the street. They don't want it. They've already got one. The Israeli Antiquities Department, they can't afford it. They've got 35000 Uncovered sites, uh, and and they can't they can't afford to get to them all, much less a, a less ornate small synagogue from the first century when you've got a more ornate rich synagogue five hundred yards away. In short, nobody wants it, and I'm standing here thinking, oh my gosh, this is probably for my money. This is the place where Jesus would have been. This is the place where he would have prayed and, and spoken and possibly healed. And nobody wants it. And then the road engineer ended with a tear in his eye. In two months, Rich, he said. This will be paved over and gone. In two months, it'll be, they'll widen the road and it'll be a, an adjacent to the roundabout across from the luxury hotel. And I tell you this story because this feels right to me. You know, I, I think oftentimes we Christians think of Jesus as a one-off for us, meaning maybe we decided to accept 
Christ and believe when we were kids or at camp or when we had children or, you know, at some point we assent to the faith. But then then we spend the rest of our lives just working our plan and checking our boxes and maybe we, you know, dutifully put something in the offering plate and we go to church. But we don't expect a surprise. We don't expect a new adventure. We don't expect a new calling. We don't expect a new healing. In Mark chapter 5, the word Jesus said to the woman, go, your faith has made you well. Very, very important word. It's called so-so. And it means that faith and saved, it also means saved, your faith has saved you. It means that we can not only be healed, but we can be saved. We can be saved from low expectations. We can be saved from boredom. We can be saved from cynicism. And we can be saved all the time. And we're not just saved once for heaven when we die. We can be saved every day as Jesus heals us and turns us around and puts us on a path for a new adventure, just like he did his friends who lived in that 10-mile arc on the north shore of the lake where the fish are. So I have a question for us all, and and this is just something that we can consider as Christian people. Uh, Where is God's surprise for us? Is God right under our noses in an unexpected place? And can we see, or why not? Well, thanks, everybody. Uh, Join me next week, next podcast. We're going to talk about some more uh, Sea of Galilee stories.